for me, racial unity for a church looks like a place where the differences between between us don't get in the way of hearing what God has to tell us. People are comfortable. People are embraced for who they are and for the way that they think and the way that they um, that they worship. Where everybody that comes in the door feels welcome, no matter what they look like, no matter who they are. People working towards understanding one another. And, and I think in order to do that, one of the things that we might have to might have to do is you know, go out and experience different ways that people worship. So I'm trying to you know push people away from coming to Windsor Road. <laughs> you know, maybe every once in a while going and experiencing something a little bit different and, and really listening and not then you know trying to accept the. The, uh, the message that God's trying to tell you. We didn't come here because of who we were. We didn't come here because white rose is the black church. We came here looking for the Holy Spirit. And we believe we found it here regardless of whether it's white or black or the number of whites or black outweigh the other. Saying that and achieving it are you know, two very different things. And, and if you can't achieve that, then I think you, you've done something. Being in a place where you can see the work happening and the work is genuine um, and also recognizing that racial harmony doesn't mean that we all hold hands and sing kumbaya that this is just one big happy place and this is why jesus died for us because we never did it right <laughs> amen isn't that true terrell spoke some truth there yeah we would never get it right. Somebody get that phone. <laughs> and everybody else silencers. I love you. Anyway, welcome to, welcome, to, welcome to Windsor Road. I mean it. Silence your phones. We're glad you're here. We're just, I love you. I love you. Silence your phone. Answer it. Anyway. Heavenly Father, um, we would never get it right. We haven't gotten it right. That is why you came in Jesus Christ. Now you're going to teach us, Lord. We, we have been anticipating hearing from you. And we are privileged now to open your word and be fed. The table is set. We're here. You are here. You've been here. You've been waiting for us, and we're hungry. So feed us, open our eyes, that we may see the wonderful things written in your word to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, the title to the introduction of my message is... Things I learned in seminary, I no longer believe. Okay. When I was in seminary in the Reagan administration, yeah, whew, I heard that. <laughs> uh, one of our church leadership classes uh, had a textbook, and the textbook is your church can grow. Now, I still believe in that. I'm into that. Your church can grow. Subtitled, Seven Vital Signs of a Healthy Church. I'm into that too. 
I'm into, I'm into health, right? Aren't we? Yeah. This is the fifth vital sign of a healthy, growing church. The fifth vital sign of a healthy, growing church. Now, keep in mind that we are in a series uh, called Skin Deep, Faith and Race in the Church. And thus far in this series, we've uh, been looking at the myths uh, of race and faith. And we talked about that two weeks ago. And then last week, uh, during our teaching time, uh, Kevin came up and, and we shared. And Kevin, for the most part, did the teaching in terms of talking about the walls and the barriers of racial unity. And we, we talked about that as well. And so, uh, so we're going to be talking about Windsor Road's responsibilities toward racial unity as, as, a, as a whole, as a corporate whole, as a body. What are our responsibilities toward racial unity? And so, so, and so your church can grow and seven vital signs of a healthy church. And here's the fifth vital sign of a healthy growing church. The fifth vital sign of a healthy growing church is that its membership is composed of basically one kind of people. That's kind of how the staff responded when I read that Tuesday. One of our staff members said, well, perhaps the author hasn't quite clarified himself. I said, well, all right, sentence number two. Even in church, birds of a feather flock together. Well, I'd say that's pretty clear. And in church growth terminology, this is called the homogeneous unit principle the homogeneous unit principle a homogeneous unit is simply a group of people who consider each other to be our kind of people they have many areas of mutual interest they share the same culture they socialize freely when they are together they are comfortable and they all feel at home of all the scientific hypotheses developed in the church growth framework This is one of the most consistently observed worldwide. Two decades of research dealing with numerous cultures in virtually every corner of the world confirms that the church is most likely to grow, note to self, grow what? Are those which bring together in the local fellowship those of a single homogeneous unit. Without doubt, It's the most controversial of all church growth principles. You don't say. Why the controversy? Here's where it gets good. Well, unfortunately, many Americans find the homogeneous unit principle very difficult to accept. Americans, particularly those with a college education seem to have a strong inherent resistance to approving churches of just one kind of people. Because you see, those with just a high school education are just too dumb to know the difference. (laughs) Yet missionaries and Christian leaders from other countries generally accept it almost as a matter of course. In Burundi, for example... Christian Tutsis have little problem in understanding why Hutus prefer their own kind of local church with their own leadership. Anybody here of Rwanda? 
Yeah, about 10 years after this edition came out, they're going to have no problem understanding because when one people group wants to commit a genocide against another people group, yeah, they kind of tend to want to be by themselves, don't you think? French Christians do not seem to have any difficulty with gypsies gathering together in gypsy churches. Anybody read the news this week about the Eastern, the European Union and, and Sarkozy from France about the gypsy thing? I mean, wow. The homogeneous unit principle. You've got to understand, I mean, this was, this was church leadership 101, you know, in the mid-'80s. I mean, this is... You know, legions of pastors were trained this. Got to understand that. And, uh, you know, the other night in my office, I was reading this to my wife, Sarah, and, uh, um, because that's what we do on date night. Um, I... <laughs> um, bring her to my office and read to her selections from books about classes in seminary I no longer believe. She, she loves it. And uh, she, honey, let's go to Tim Boney's tonight. She says, no, let's go to your office. Read to me. Yeah. Is there still room in the dynamic marriage class, by the way? Is it maybe? No. In my office the other night, as I read this to her, she said, well, do you remember how you responded in the mid-'80s when you, when you heard this? Do you remember what your response was? And I said to her, oh, absolutely. I took copious notes. I wrote a favorable paper. You mean there, there wasn't any pushback in class? Let me see. It's a class full of white students led by a white teacher. No, not that I recall. No, not at all. Yeah. And what's happened is that, uh, you know, pastors have been schooled on the homogeneous unit principle and then in turn have led according to this principle, and then in turn what's happened is, is, is a sort of spiritual apartheid has occurred. Yeah. Now I can get the homogeneous unit principle you know, if during basketball season we're going to go to the assembly hall and paint the hall orange. Yeah, I'm good. that's good for a game. It's great for, it's great for a home field advantage. I've just come to the conclusion that in terms of growing a church that passionately pursues Christ, here it is. The homogeneous unit principle is a, is a bad idea that works really well. It's pragmatically rich and it's theologically and biblically poor. It is. Because basically what it says is that, you know, you, you know, we'll do our thing, and you do your thing, and we'll just see in heaven. Take care of it then. Yeah. And, and I don't see that 
when I look through the pages of God's word. I don't see, that's not what we see in Revelation chapter 7, which is what we were singing about, that that's, that, that's not what we see there. We, we know, we know what we see when we look in the pages of God's word. Revelation chapter 7, uh, verses 9 uh, through 10. Let's put that up on the screen and let's say that together. All right, here we go. One, two, three. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the land. Does that look like the homogeneous unit principle to you? Things I learned in seminary, I no longer believe. And it's this unity that shows up in the pages of the New Testament and culminates as our destiny in the book of Revelation. And this, brothers and sisters, is our, is God's reality. This is God's reality. That's the real world. That's the real world. And therefore, for the church, for a local church to oppose this reality here and now is to oppose the direction towards which the kingdom is destined. So therefore, we do have responsibilities We do have responsibilities. And our responsibility, God wants the reality of Revelation chapter 7 in heaven now. That's what God wants. God wants the reality of Revelation chapter 7 in heaven now. Now. And because that's what he wants, we pray that portion of the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We know what God's will is in this matter. We know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Therefore, we do have responsibilities. And I want to talk about those responsibilities this morning. And I want to use uh, three words to, for you to track alongside as we, as we discuss these responsibilities. And the words are worship, walk, and work. Worship, walk, and and work. And we see these words when we look to Paul's letter uh, to the Romans in the New Testament. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. Uh, Romans, the book of Romans, just start in chapter one. We're gonna take a uh, we're gonna take a flyby of the letter to the Romans here this morning, and you'll find uh, the letter, Paul's letter to the Romans on page 795 of your church Bibles. And, you know, we've often looked at Paul's letter to the Romans in terms of its, its structure and its doctrinal content, and that's wonderful and beautiful, and it's been called, the letter to the Romans has been called the Christian's Constitution What we need to remember additionally is that Paul's letter to the Romans was actually a letter written to a local church in the capital of the Roman Empire. So there were real people. And uh, and this letter was received by by Christians who, uh, you know, uh, uh, worshipped 
together in house churches. And so there's a story as to why Paul wrote this letter uh, to the Christians in Rome. The fact of the matter is, the church at Rome was a multi-ethnic church. And it was started, we're pretty sure that the church at Rome was started as a result of the events of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where uh, the uh, Jews from all of the empire had come and descended upon Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost. And, and, and then the Holy Spirit came and Peter's gospel message 3,000 people were baptized, and, and from all parts of the empire, these Jewish Christians then returned to their homes. And we're pretty sure that a local church was established, which was at first predominantly Jewish, Jewish Christians, who then shared the light of the gospel in that dark pagan capital. And, and then, then these Gentiles then came to Christ, and so, and so at first... At first, the church would have been predominantly Jewish in, in, in their flavor. Until the year 49 AD. In the year 49 AD, now if I'm going to lose anybody, I'm going to lose you right now. In the year 49 AD, the emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews from the city of Rome. And he did not differentiate between Jews and Jewish Christians didn't see any difference, that Roman emperor. So imagine now, now, Windsor Road is predominantly white, if you haven't noticed. Imagine all of the whites being expelled from, say, Illinois for five years. But the gospel continues, and the gospel continues to change lives. And, and so five years later, when the Jewish Christians returned to the, to the capital city of Rome, why, they saw that the gospel had transformed these Gentiles' lives. And, but now the dynamic had changed, you see. To either there was either parity between the, the, the Christians of, of, the, of the nations, or, or perhaps even there was a Gentile, uh, say, majority within the church dynamic. Now, so, so, so how did that affect maybe the way music was done? Or how did that affect maybe the, just the style, just the flavor? It was just, you know, talk about who moved my cheese. Now what's our responsibility in that light? And Paul says, see, see, it's that context to which we receive the letter to the Romans. You've got to understand that. There's a story there. A story of this multi-ethnic congregation of of here, one race being banished for several years and then coming back and seeing how the gospel has changed. So what's the, what's the responsibilities there? And this is where we see these three words. And the first is worship. Worship. We, we are responsible to reconcile people of all races to God in Jesus, through Jesus in worship. That's our first responsibility. That, that, is to say, that is to say, racial reconciliation will occur when the church understands that racial reconciliation is not our prime directive. Our prime directive is reconciling all to God through Jesus. 
I like how one local church here in America puts it. Uh, it's called Mosaic Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's a multi-ethnic church. It, this, is on their, this is on their statement of purpose. We are not a church focused on racial reconciliation. Rather, we are focused on reconciling men and women to God through faith in Christ, producing congregations of faith in which diverse men and women walk and work and worship God together as one for the sake of the gospel. See, it's only the power of the gospel that can affect reconciliation first between ourselves and God and then one another. And that's why, is it not? Isn't that why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Our commitment is to the gospel because our biggest problem, our biggest problem is not lack of reconciliation between ethnicities. Our biggest problem is our lack of reconciliation with God. And our biggest problem is unforgiven sin. And our biggest problem is being guilty before the holiest and most important person in the universe. That's our biggest problem. And that's what the Apostle Paul argues in Romans Chapters 1 through 3, right? I mean, he starts with the Gentile Christians. See? Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He goes on to say, you know, how how. The, the Gentiles and the pagan nations, and they go outside and they see the splendor of creation. Listen, you don't need a Bible to know that God exists. You don't. Paul says so. You don't. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, there is a design, there must be a designer. There is creation, there must be a, crea- a creator having been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, you see? But instead of the Gentiles falling on their faces in worship to this amazing, almighty God, what's happened? They started worshiping themselves. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and and reptiles. They became idol worshipers, and you become what you worship. Whatever it is you worship, that's what you become. And just as the those of Hebrew ethnicity kind of begin to look kind of condescending down on these, these pagan barbarians for their idol worship. Paul jumps over to Romans chapter 2 when he says, you therefore have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else. Verse 17 of chapter 2. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God, Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Verse 23, you who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? The answer to that is yes, you do. 
And that's why Paul concludes in chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the, the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And that's why Paul gets to the conclusion of this section here. He says in, in Romans three nineteen, every mouth is silenced and the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, are held accountable to God. Someone once said, we are a beautiful letdown, painfully uncool, the church of the dropouts, the losers, the sinners, the failures, and the fools. That's who we are. Welcome to Windsor Road. You see, before the cross of Jesus Christ, there are no innocent parties. The the cross is not for some and against others. It is a place where all are guilty. It's the place where all are guilty, and it's the place where all are forgiven. You see, after telling us, after telling us the bad news, oh, now we get to the good news. And the good news begins in the book of Romans with two of, I think, the most beautiful words in Scripture. The words, but now. But now. Romans 3.21. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, you see. And, and, and Paul then begins to continue his argument in Romans chapter 4 when he talks about the, the, the father of the Hebrew people, Abraham. When he says that, you know, Abraham, Abraham you know, did not become a part of the people of God because of his ethnicity, but because of the integrity of his faith. Romans chapter 4 verse 3 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So it wasn't by his ethnicity, it was by his faith. It wasn't by the shade of his skin, it was by the seriousness of his trust. Which is why Romans 4.18 says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became what? The father of many nations. You see, it's all because of the gospel. Because of what Jesus did. Uh, in August of 1957, uh, two Germans and two Italians were climbing the 6,000-foot near-vertical north face in the Swiss Alps. And there was an accident. Two of the German climbers uh, perished. Uh, they were never, their bodies were never discovered. The two Italian climbers, exhausted and dying, were stuck on two narrow ledges a thousand feet below the summit. And their accident was so serious that the, uh, the state rescue unit just, it was just, and it was just so dangerous, they said, no, we can't, we can't go for the rescue. We're going to have to, they're just going to have to perish. But there was a small private group of Swiss climbers who launched a rescue effort. And what they did was they went, they actually they actually went to the top of the summit and they lowered a climber whose name was Alfred Hellepart. 
They lowered him down the 6,000 foot north face and they suspended hell apart on a cable uh, a fraction of an inch thick as they lowered him into this abyss. And this is what he wrote describing this rescue effort. He wrote, as I was lowered down the summit, my comrades on top grew further and further distant until they disappeared from sight. At this moment, I felt an indescribable aloneness. Then for the first time, I peered down the abyss of the north face. The terror of the sight robbed me of breath. The brooding blackness of the face falling away in almost endless expanse beneath me made me look with awful longing to the thin cable disappearing about me in the midst, in the mist. Then he said this, he said, I was a tiny human being dangling in space between heaven and hell. The sole relief from terror, the sole relief from terror was my mission to save the climber below. The church family, that is the heart of the gospel right there. We were trapped and we, all of us, were on that ledge, but in the person and presence of Jesus, God lowered himself into the abyss of our sin and our suffering, and in Jesus, God became that tiny human being dangling between heaven and hell, and he did this to save us. Romans chapter five, verse eight says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, this is the gospel that we're responsible to get out to all people of God's risky, costly, sacrificial rescue effort on our behalf because of his love for us. We are responsible for that so that all might come before him through Jesus in worship. Worship. Well, let's move on to the second word. Walk. Walk. We, we are responsible to come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, now they've been rescued and redeemed and now we are to come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ in selfless, loving, interracial relationships. And, and Paul presses this when he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, now if we, we, Jews and Gentiles, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. We share the same Holy Spirit that brother or sister of, of, of your ethnicity or different tribe or different ethnicity, that is still your brother and sister in Christ through faith in Christ. And for those Christians in the first century, either Jewish or Gentile ethnicity, who began to kind of feel a little animosity toward one another, well, you see, here's where we have Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11, where Paul makes it absolutely clear. It's no one's ethnicity that gives them an edge. Rather, Romans 9, 15, God says, I will have mercy on whom I want to have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I want to have compassion. 
And that requires our minds to be transformed and changed. Romans 12. One, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, all of you. And this comes into play when we walk with one another, which takes us to Romans 14 and 15. <laughs> and Paul tells us to accept one another without passing judgment, Romans 14.1, without passing judgment on disputable matters. Disputable matters. I mean, now you've got to understand, you know, we think we've got uh, uh, ethnic and racial issues here in our century, but in the, in the first century, we're talking, we're talking very deep, deep uh, divides here between the Jews and the Gentiles. You're talking about but her- two different heritages. You're talking about, you're talking about religious and cultural uh, a heritage that embraced different holidays and sacred days and, and, and certain practices like circumcision. And then you're talking about a Gentile uh, heritage that embraced, you know, uh, uh, pagan worship and, and uh, worship in temples and idols and, and worship that involved temple prostitutes. You've got, you've got huge divides here in terms of, of, of the differentiations between the Jews and the Gentiles. And then you've got, and then, and then you've got a racial issue between uh, one people group whose lineage goes all the way back. You know, not Isaac and Ishmael, not, uh, not Jacob and Esau, but all the way, all the way back to Abraham. These divisions were, were even worse, if not the same, as those maybe we feel today. And here is the redeemed people of God, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. The Apostle Paul insists that we are to accept one another without passing judgment on disputable matters. Back then, it would have involved uh, 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 ceremonial foods and drinks and certain holy days. A disputable matter, what is that? A disputable matter are those behaviors which Christians are not to pass judgment on their brothers and sisters concerning. Disputable matters, they they, they are not matters which God has revealed in his word as sin. That's a disputable matter. Disputable matters are things which God does not explicitly condemn and which fall within the circle of Christian liberty. Now what might that look like today? Well, you know, it might look like certain foods or certain uh, beverages or it might look like certain political parties. It might look like certain movies or maybe, maybe dancing or types of dancing or it might look like music style and worship and, or it might look like a venue of worship. Do we worship in a house church or do we meet on a campus? What about the decor? What about the seating arrangement? When I preached in Nepal last February, we had about as many people in the worship service as as are here this morning in a room half this size. How does that work? Well, you take the chairs out and sit on the floor. That's what happens, okay? And furthermore, men were on one side, women on the other. That's just how they do it, okay? And furthermore, Nobody had shoes on because they all took their shoes off at the door. They got 400 little cubicles. You put your shoes in, okay? Took me two hours to find mine. Where's my, where did I put my shoes? 
I mean, whether these are right or wrong, it depends on the convictions and the heart attitude of the one doing them. And, and perhaps over the years, what's happened is that we have become so pragmatically inclined to quickly and swiftly gather a crowd of homogeneous units that we have sacrificed the spiritual skill, the spiritual skill of accepting each other. But accept each other we must. We must. I mean, Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Accept one another then. It doesn't mean accept one another's opinions. It doesn't mean accept their disputable matters. It says accept one another. Accept one another. And, and, and notice, notice what verse 7 says. Accept one another. It doesn't say accept one another because Christ has accepted them. You know, see, there's a sense when we, we, can, we can kind of begin to think condescendingly over this other brother and sister who's just not quite as mature as we are. And so I'm going to accept that, that weaker person because, well, Christ accepts them. And maybe when they grow up and be like me, then we'll all, you know, be more on the same page. And, and that's not what it says, does it? It says accept one another because Christ accepted you. Huh? in order to bring praise to God. See, that's the, that's the end game. That's the end game. I want you to accept one another because when the, when, when the darkness of Rome sees the light of God's love and the oneness and the unity in his people who accept one another, and by accept one another, I don't mean you know, you smile and politely nod and then as they pass you, you roll your eyes. No, no, no. That means I love you. I'm interested in you. I mean, help me understand your world. I just, because I love you. I want to enter your world. Let me, let me, I want, let me, I want to try to experience what you're experiencing. And when the world sees that, and the world, you, listen, you, tomorrow morning when you go to your Rome, you may be the only light. You may be the only light. And you feel discouraged, and you feel that you're in an oppressive environment. Well, it's because you are. See, 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 the problem with the homogeneous unit principle is that it only goes skin deep. See, the fact of the matter is, without Christ, everybody's lost. Without Christ, everybody, there's, there's, there's something homogenous about this entire world without Christ, and it's called darkness. But when you bring your light into that darkness, people, they're attracted to that. They want to see that. Tell me about the God you worship. And that's why Paul says to the praise of God. And that's our responsibility, church. It's our responsibility for worship, walking and then and then to work we are responsible to do good to all people and especially those who belong to the family of God we're responsible to do good to all people of all races and especially those who belong to the family of God and and if you just continue to look down Romans chapter 15 you'll see 
You'll see what Paul is talking about here. He says in verse 25 and 26 and 27, Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there, predominantly Jewish Christians, for Macedonia and Achaia, predominantly Gentile, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. In other words, there's going to be solidarity among the people of God of all races and ethnicities and tribes and nations because the Spirit of Christ indwells His people, and we're going to, we're going to look after We're going to look after God's people. And we're going to do that in ministry and in work to meet needs with love. And church, I just have only encouragements to talk with you about that in this point. I mean, I'm thinking of last year's weekend of service. And yes, uh, I just spoke with Lisa Sheltra uh, this week about next year's weekend of service. And uh, when is it going to be? I don't know. And now you know what I know, okay? Uh, but Lord willing, um, probably, probably in the fall, but uh, that's all she wanted me to, she actually didn't want me to say anything more about that because we're still, we're still praying and planning, but I'm, gonna, I'm teasing you with that. But I'm, I'm so grateful to God and want to encourage us here because, because we are, see, we're doing this. And, and I think about our missions trips to the Dominican and to Peru. And I'm thinking about the church plants that we supported in El Paso with uh, uh, Paseo Christian Church. And, and even uh, a lesser uh, familiar project to many of you at the Killeen, uh, Texas uh, Church, Hill Country Church, uh, led uh, by Lou and Shirley Best, who were former members here at Windsor Road. And um, I'm thinking about just what happened at Family Resource Day uh, with Salt and Light. And you just need to go out the glass doors and look to the right. Surely you've seen the display. Uh, Lisa did give me these facts to share with you. There were 21 local churches involved with 200 volunteers. A plurality of those volunteers came from Windsor Road. And, and 12,000, over 12,000 pounds of food distributed, over 1,000 items of clothing, resources given out to 250 families, 936 filled backpacks, prayer was offered to all. And in just a few moments, uh, uh, Michelle Maroon is gonna come up and talk about another opportunity with Real Life uh, Teen Moms Ministry. Uh, I'll, I'll put this on your calendar. On October 17th, we're going to have another opportunity as a local church to, to worship and have table fellowship with uh, Restoration Urban Ministry uh, there on their campus off of Parkland Court. October the 17th, write that down. What I'm trying to tell you is at the end of racism, oh, and I haven't talked with you about Celebrate Recovery. What I'm trying to tell you is that racism in our country and throughout the world is not going to be solved in any political capital. It's going to be solved amid the local churches where spirit-filled believers gather and worship together and walk together and work together. Amen. And here's the thing, and I'll just share my heart with you here. I was talking about this message this week with someone from our church family. And, and, and the, 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 this brother was just so honest with me and I appreciated it. This person said, you know, the, 
a concern that I do have, Randy, is that, you know, you, you keep challenging us, you know. You, you've challenged us with weekend of service. You've challenged us with Celebrate Recovery. you challenged us with, with, with these missions trips, and you challenge us with Salt and Light, and you, you challenge us with, uh, you know, what's going on with Celebrate Recovery and, 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 and Family Resource Day. And now you're challenging us here in this series, Ken Deep. And my, just my, my concern is that someone from among the church family is just going to say, enough, I've had enough. I'm tired of being challenged here. And I guess my response is this. First of all, this is not the four seasons. Okay? This isn't pillow soft Christian church. Right? We're called to this destiny that that God is challenging us towards. All right? And secondly, someone else has already said enough. Someone else has already said, someone else has already said, done. Someone else has already said that. And it was that person hanging on that cross who said that just before he gave up the spirit. Accomplished, he said. Done. Finished. Enough. Did our Lord not cry that? And so maybe you are feeling frustration. Maybe you are. Maybe in your Rome, you are frustrated and you are discouraged and you are angry because you, maybe you've been the victim of discrimination or maybe you've been the victim of a slur or maybe you've, maybe you've seen someone game the system, all right? What Jesus says on the cross is I want you to put that anger and that frustration and that hatred and that hurt and I want you to just pin it on me. I want you to put it on me. And we say, I would never do that to you, Lord. And that's why you're so angry with the other person. You keep trying to pin it on them and it still lives. But that's the only place where you're going to pin it and it'll kill it. And so he says, enough. Now you know why the Apostle Paul says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the cross. It's all the bragging I'm going to do. I'm going to brag in what Jesus has done on the cross so that God's reality in heaven can happen on earth as we worship, as we walk, as we work. And I believe that that's why the Apostle Paul ends the book of Romans with this doxology in Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. And God's people said,